You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Welcome to the 5 o'clock evening news. We start off this evening's broadcast with a special Whoa. report. Oh are you drinking poison? We made it to the news? Every morning. Billions of people around the world are consuming a toxic, addictive insecticide. Some people are so (laughs) enslaved to this substance that they cannot even make it through a single day without many doses of this poison. Uh In spite of its toxicity, this substance is the subject of many so-called humorous mugs and (laughs) t-shirts. Would people still be laughing if they knew that as little as 4.3 grams can kill a 165-pound man? Okay, so that was my best. I did not see that coming. <laughs> nope, I wasn't prepared for that. That's amazing. <laughs> I think I know I, what I mean, you're I did tell about. you guys. Oh, I for sure know where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was my best imitation of a typically fear-mongering local news broadcast. I love it. <laughs> Everything I just said is true, uh-huh. but you may or may not have realized that I am, in fact, talking about caffeine. There it is. Yep. Yeah. Woo! Had uh, some today. <laughs> I actually, I used to drink a lot of caffeine, but I gave it up. I haven't had any caffeine in like something like 20 years. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, I used to drink like a lot of coffee, totally addicted to caffeine, but I gave it up. uh, Gosh, it's got to be 15, 20 years ago now. I didn't know that about you, Kirk. Kirk. Yeah. Or if you told me that before, I forgot. Yeah, it was was quite a deal. Well, other than Kirk, many of us uh, are dependent (laughs) on... Our beloved Rachel, as I recall, you like to call them hot bean water and hot leaf water. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Uh, otherwise known as coffee and tea. Oh, so Most delicious. people know. Yes, they are. Most people know, of course, that coffee beans and tea leaves come from plants, a mm-hmm. small tree and a shrub, respectively. What a lot of people haven't thought about is why there is caffeine in these plants. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. As I alluded yeah, as I alluded to earlier on the evening news, no, it's not it's not working. Uh, it is it is an insecticide. Um, caffeine right, is right. toxic to insects in large doses. So uh, by having it in the leaves and other tissues, plants discourage insects from eating them. Makes sense. Uh, but it may also be helpful to the plant in discouraging mm. competition. Uh, there's some evidence that when the leaves fall to the ground, the caffeine leaches into the soil and prevents seeds of other plants from germinating. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, we see that in other plants. Yeah. Well, and Wild. also one of the sources said that a small amount of caffeine gets into the nectar of the flowers of these plants and just slightly buzzes the insects. <laughs> buzzes, yeah. They come back for more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. I don't know how true that is. Hmm. Sure, sure. Yeah. And while most of us get our caffeine from coffee and tea, there are other plants that produce it. Around 60 of them that are known. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, Most people are aware that chocolate also has some caffeine in it. Yeah. I guess I have had caffeine from chocolate. (laughs) I read recently that the, uh, that the, the other compounds in chocolate sort of somewhat 
modify the effects of the caffeine so it doesn't keep you awake as much. The mm. theobromine will do that? Yeah, the theobromine and other stuff is in there as well. Right. Uh, but there are actually m- several more caffeine-producing plants that we know of around the world really? that people use. Okay. Uh, probably the best known in the U.S. besides coffee, tea, and chocolate is yerba mate, which mm-hmm. is a plant mm-hmm. from South America. Yeah, it's made into a beverage that is still widely consumed, especially in Southern South America. Yeah. And you can also find it for sale in some places in the U.S. as well. Uh, so you're... I've had it. It's I've out. never actually tried it, but I know I think I've um, had it. people who drink it. So it's actually... Yerba mate is actually a species of holly. And really? what I did not know until very recently wow. is that North America has its own caffeinated holly with its really? own long history of human consumption. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So Native North Americans were getting buzzed on caffeine okay. long before Columbus arrived. <laughs> okay. Possibly bringing coffee with him. I'm not sure if he did. Uh, the plant. I mean, he never actually made it to the mainland. So. No. No, he didn't. He didn't. Uh, the plant is called Yaupon, Yaupon holly or Cassina. Oh, I've heard of it. And that. you have. Okay. I am not going to tell mm-hmm. you its Latin name yet because there is a story there. I don't Ooh, want to give it. it away too soon. Ooh. Yeah. So the natural range of Yaupon is along the Gulf and Atlantic coasts uh, from kind of southern Texas through southern Virginia. Mm-hmm. And it grows as a small tree or a shrub, five to nine meters high. Okay. It has shiny dark green leaves. And if you think about, if you think about sort of your idea of a holly leaf with all those spines, it's not spiny in the same way, but its leaves are serrated and it kind of has a similar shape. Okay. You can kind of see the relationship to spiky holly. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. And... As we know, humans love their caffeine. So, of course, people have been using Yopan for thousands of years. <laughs> of um, it was apparently traded quite widely. So cups with uh, molecular traces of Yopan were excavated in Cahokia, which is oh, the yeah. large ancient city uh, that's near present-day St. Louis. Right, right. Okay. Uh, which is well outside of the plant's native range. Well, that's very cool. And early European explorers and colonists also noticed the local people drinking it all over the American South, even in places where it didn't grow. So Hmm. according to the accounts of these early colonists, Yopan tea was apparently used for ceremonial purposes as well as for everyday drinking. And now we get to the plant's Latin name and also the reason that it, one of the reasons at least that it remains so little known today. Okay, so I'm intrigued. Um, yeah. The plant is named Ilex, which is just the genus name for holly. Oh, Ilex yeah. vomitoria. Oh, oh well, <laughs> that uh, does not sound great. Yeah, maybe I'll pass. That sounds great. So very well. It's appetizing. A... <laughs> no. It's it's slander. It is slander. Oh. It's slander. It apparently is quite nice tasting. Yes. Okay. So, so what's up with the name then? It doesn't make you vomit. No, <laughs> it don't. It does not make you vomit. Great. I will explain. So I mentioned the ceremonial use of this tea. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Apparently, among at least some tribes, this ceremony involving the tea involved drinking 
huge volumes of the tea uh, and then ritually vomiting, oh, which was apparently a thing. I think possibly ritual for like vomiting. a purification ritual or something like that. Lovely. Anyway, it's maybe it's unclear if they m- were maybe adding another herb that was an emetic, uh-huh. which is something that makes you vomit mm-hmm. for these rituals, or just the fact that if you drink enough volume of anything too quickly, it will make <laughs> you puke. Right. Yeah. But the associates, yeah, yeah uh, you know, people do weird things everywhere. Yeah, this is true. I know somebody who drank a gallon of water just on a dare and then so uh, anyway the association with vomiting was enough that when it came time to give the plant a latin binomial in the 18th century this is what was chosen it's quite a choice yeah quite a choice so all of this, plus the name, has led to this myth that the plant is poisonous or makes you vomit, and it does not. It's not poisonous, other than like the slight poisonousness of caffeine if you have a huge amount of it. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, but you have to. You have to. You can't drink enough coffee to kill yourself. You have to basically drink the eat the purified form of caffeine if you want to kill yourself. Don't do. That. In fact, um, European. Yeah, don't yeah, do that. Don't. Uh, European colonists actually pretty quickly picked up the habit of drinking Yaupon since it was readily available, much cheaper than imported coffee or tea. And addictive. Yeah. And it was often called black drink, apparently. Huh. And it was widely consumed across the South. That is really interesting. And actually use of Yaupon picked up during and after the American Civil War when Southerners had little money and also little access to imported caffeine products Hmm. so this Mm -hmm. also led to something of its downfall though because after the southern economy had started to pick up again yaupon sort of became associated with poverty and the war and became socially stigmatized it wasn't as fancy as coffee yeah so actually the plant continues to be widely grown as an ornamental and uh, now, thanks to the local food movement, it is undergoing something of a revival as a beverage. That is cool. You can buy some online. And apparently several coffee shops in cities like Austin and uh, Asheville, North Carolina, now offer it. Very That's, cool. Uh, something you can order. If any of you at home have tried it, remember, send us a message to contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. Let us know how it tastes. Please do. Yeah, that'd be really cool. I haven't tried any myself. I'm tempted to order some. Uh, Apparently, uh, according to the tasting notes I read online, it tastes quite nice. Kind of similar to green tea, sort of with an herbal kind of floral taste to it. So it sounds sounds very pleasant. Cool. Okay. Uh, That's that's what I have for you this week. My sources were Atlas Obscura, the New York Times, and Wikipedia. Nice. And I just, I, I found out about this and I was like, wow, I never heard of that. That is so cool. And I just wanted to share it with you. Well, thanks so much, Victoria. That was uh, really cool to find out about. Yeah, well, that's what I got. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, it will be Kirk. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, One of the topics that comes up from time to time on the show is evolution. And that's probably because evolution sometimes leads to some pretty Mm -hmm. weird stuff. And one of the key concepts in evolution is that of selection pressure, right? Right. So the basic idea is that there are pressures 
or stressors or just stuff going on that makes survival challenging. And uh, those animals or plants that can better survive those challenges are more likely to survive and thus pass on their genes uh, or their genes to the next ones that are likely to get passed on to the next generation. So over time, the pressures actually shape the species or change it so much we would consider it a separate new species. Selection pressures can be literally anything that affects survival. So I thought it might be interesting uh, this week to look at strange and interesting examples of times where the main selection pressure on plants and animals was none other than us, humans. Ooh. You mean, aside from, uh, uh, like, breeding domestic an domesticated oh, animals? Right, I was... Yeah, not that. And plants. Genetic, modified... <laughs> nope, just sort of natural, you know, uh, not stuff that we created on purpose. Ooh. Yeah. So this is weird because I think that at least in our culture, we tend to, unfortunately, think of humans as separate from nature. Like if you think of a yeah. wilderness area, it's a place where humans are not present, or at least if they are present, they are there as guests. They're going to go home. We insulate ourselves from the world in our warm and air or air conditioned houses. Uh, and we tend to act like nature has no effect right. on us and we have no effect on it, though, of course, that is ridiculous. It's especially ridiculous when there are 8 billion of us mm. on the planet, right? So there are countless plants and animals that we're putting selection pressure on every single day. Mm -hmm. But I thought it might be fun to highlight some of the more notable ones. So here we go. I think the first one I ever heard of uh, was the peppered moth. That's Biston betularia. And there's a good chance you've seen a peppered moth if you live in North America, Asia, or Europe. They are white moths that are peppered with black spots. It's, it's a good name. Oh, yeah. Uh, the spots are really tiny. Okay. So it does look like someone dusted them in small grains of milled pepper, thus their common name. Uh, their camouflage is pretty amazing, and they blend in really well with tree bark, which is the most common place to find okay. them hiding out. Uh, these moths faced a problem, though, back during the Industrial Revolution mm -hmm. in England. That problem was air pollution. Now, there was really two issues. First up, the poor air quality killed all the lichens growing on the trees, and part of the color pattern of the bark uh, that the moths were trying to mimic was the color of the lichens. So if they're not there, that's, okay. that's not good, right? But secondly, there was so much coal soot in the air that it actually blackened the bark of the trees. Oh. And I think today we have trouble imagining yeah. just how bad the air quality was during the Industrial Revolution. But as you can imagine, if you are a white moth yeah. that likes to hide on what are now black mm -hmm. trees, this is a really bad situation and you're going to get eaten real quickly. Yeah. Uh -huh. You're not going to do well. And uh, what's interesting is that a mutation occurred that produced a darker mm -hmm. moth. And those moths with the mutation survived. The first black or melanistic peppered moth was noted in 1848 in Manchester. And quite quickly, the dark colored moths became the norm. Like that was what was left. Uh, they basically looked the same, except imagine mm. someone took black watercolor paint and gave them a couple washes with this black wash. Okay. So the new moths uh, now exactly matched the sooty trees. 
And what's really cool about this though, and interesting is that once the air quality improved, the selection pressure reversed. And nowadays the white okay. version is more common once again, now that our air is clean, which is pretty cool. So I'm gonna to move to a completely different part of the world and talk uh, about a completely different size of animal. Let's talk about elephants. Now, elephants are pretty amazing and large animals. Huh. Uh, there are many reasons that I would not want to get into a fight with one, not least of which mm -hmm. are their massive size, but also those huge tusks. And elephant tusks are an amazing adaptation that have helped protect them uh, for generations. Unfortunately, interhumans. <laughs> tusks are made of ivory and are extremely valuable. People will risk their lives to kill an elephant for ivory, mm -hmm. which is bad and sad news. The value of ivory has fallen a bit. It's actually hard to get exact like dollars amount because it's all black market. Oh, okay. But uh, the peak in about 2014, uh, it, we believe the value of ivory was about $2,500 per kilo. And the ivory from a single elephant could be worth as much as 375 mm -hmm thousand us dollars so as you can imagine the selection pressure on elephants from humans was and is high but evolution has entered the chat uh, in mozambique there was a deadly civil war between 1977 and 1992 mm -hmm. uh, sadly over one million people died in the conflict but so did many elephants due to poaching uh, armies were killing elephants for ivory to help fund the mm -hmm. war so already high pressures went into overdrive and something really interesting happened. There was a random mutation that already existed back in the 1970s uh, where some females were born without tusks. Mm -hmm. This was generally a disadvantage, uh, but the genes persisted at a low level in the population. About uh, like 18% of the female elephants had no tusks. Now, during those 20 years of intense hunting, only females with tusks were killed, while no one had any basically financial interest in the tuskless females. And by the year 2000, when researchers again surveyed the population, they found that tuskless elephants now made up over 50% of the female population. Oh, yeah. wow. So human selection pressure is basically creating tuskless elephants that are less likely to be poached. Uh, sadly, on a side note, uh, this genetic mutation uh, is not found in the male uh, DNA. So uh, tough luck. Uh, there's, there's not going to be tuskless males. So it can't help them, but it can help the females. Okay. I think I have time for maybe uh, another quick one here. Atlantic cod. So you may have heard that Atlantic cod have uh, been wildly overfished. Mm -hmm. uh, this sure. has created a huge selection pressure on them. And one of the big problems is that they take a while to reach maturity. And if they get harvested before they can reproduce, you run into a situation where there are fewer and fewer cod every year because we eat them before they can replace themselves. Studies have shown that the mm -hmm. huge pressure of overfishing has caused cod to actually mature more rapidly or more correctly. I guess evolution has favored those fish that can mature faster as they are the ones that pass along their genes before ending up on the dinner table. So think about this. We have literally affected how quickly a species matures, which kind of blows my mind. 
So this right. is a weird and uh, a cool topic. Uh, there's like there's really yeah. thousands of examples out there. Uh, there's flowers that have gotten shorter, like the Tibetan snow lotus, so they can avoid being picked by humans. Uh, there's insects like bed bugs uh, that have developed resistance to our pesticides. Whoa! Oh yeah, lice too. <sighs> These are all examples of how humans are undeniably part of the process of natural selection. Now, annoyingly, while reading up on this topic, I came across a journal article in. You guessed it, the worst named journal in the history of the world, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, a.k.a. PNAS. Yeah. Uh, the article was called Human-Induced Evolution Caused by Unnatural Selection Through the Harvest of Wild Animals. Look, this drives me crazy. Scientists, stop saying this. There is no such thing as unnatural selection. Yeah. Humans are part of nature. Us viewing ourselves as special and not a part of nature and unnatural is exactly what causes us to make decisions that presuppose that we can act like there will be no repercussions. We're part of the system, too. Yep, yep. Every decision we make places pressures on nature. Every decision has natural consequences for the species around us. And not only does our environment shape us through selection pressures, but we, too, shape right. our environment. That isn't some strange unique situation that's just part of existing is it strange you bet it is but like hey welcome to earth so uh my sources this week were berkeley's understanding evolution wikipedia and oddly uh study study.com so uh that's what i've got for you we're gonna go to break when we come back we'll have rachel All right, welcome back, everyone. First off, happy Valentine's Day. Uh, if you are listening oh to this yes. on the day yep. that we set out the episode. It's, yeah, I forgot it was going to be coming out on Valentine's Day. <laughs> That's fair. To be honest. Happy VD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. You know that I mean, stands for something else, too, right? <laughs> Oh, that's right. Maybe we shouldn't uh, phrase it that yep. way. <laughs> we just won't go there. This is a family show. Okay, we're going to move on. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, so since Valentine, Valentine's Day is such an iconic day for things like love, uh, I want to ask you, what are some icons? What are things that you think about when you think of Valentine's Day, when you think of love, things mm. you give to your significant Chocolates. other? Yeah, chocolates, hearts, yeah, fat hearts. babies with arrows, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the what is called cupids. Yeah, I suppose yeah. you don't yeah. give those the uh, flowers, heart shaped yeah. uh, cards. Yeah, sure. All of the above. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> so generally, a lot of the symbols of love and Valentine's Day, you all, you both mentioned, uh, like hearts, roses, flowers, pink. the color red, mm-hmm. cupids, pink, white. Uh, they surround and they are built up in a lot of romances, like when it comes to romance novels or films or anything like that. And one of the, what I think of is as an iconic symbol of, of maybe not necessarily love, but something that you give to someone who you love. Uh, it's a, it's even considered an aphrodisiac in some ways too, uh, where it comes from. Okay. 
that's my topic today. So let's talk about pearls. Oh, <laughs> let's pearls. talk about pearls, oh, y'all. Okay, pearls. They are pearls. Uh, good for clutching. You can clutch your pearls. So common <laughs> knowledge. Yeah, they're great for clutching. Just <laughs> gasp. Oh, boy. Ah! So common knowledge is that pearls are made in oysters, which are a type of bivalve mollusk. Right. Now, yeah. it, pearls are not just made in oysters. They can be made in just about any bival- bivalve mollusk, oh, okay. but they have to be able to create certain uh, materials, which I'll get mm-hmm. into. Sure. And what happens, the common knowledge is that a grain of sand gets stuck inside of the shell in this oyster and the oyster coats it and coats it and then it makes that pearl. Right. Yes. I am irritated. uh, This is bothering me. I'm going to cover this. As you say, that's that's the common knowledge. Ah, you caught that. Yeah. I noticed you said that, too. Hmm. Good, because. That's not, yeah, that's not completely okay. true. Oh, okay. So it's slightly so different. So the overall process. I mean, now that you mention it, Rachel, uh, it seems odd that, yeah. like, they live in sand. So why would they be getting grains of sand stuck in them? Interesting you bring that up. So overall, the process of that I described is true. Something gets in to an oyster it triggers that natural defense system okay uh this oyster isn't able to move whatever irritant is in there whatever is bothering the very delicate muscle inside of that oyster shell Mm -hmm. so it starts to secrete some substances that the same substances actually that the out the shell itself of the bivalve is made up of uh which are aragonite and concholin. Okay. Okay. Um, the combination of which creates nacre, which is also known as mother of pearl, yeah. which is that right. iridescent right. kind of yep. color uh, material. This nacre then coats whatever is irritating the, mos- the oyster. Right. And eventually creates a pearl. It protects that coating, cre- uh, then protects the oyster from the thing that was bothering it. Okay. However, like you pointed out, Kirk, oysters are filter feeders. Right. And they live (laughs) on the sandy bottoms of the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) They'd be like full of sand. And they're pretty good at getting, uh, you know, water and sand Mm -hmm. out of their system. Right, 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 right. Okay. So it seems something's amiss. At least, like, it's kind of the thing they do. So... What happens, how are natural pearls created then? That's the question. You know what's really hard to remove from uh, your system? Um, dead. Uh, yeah, dead parasites. Stuff. Parasites, yeah. <laughs> That's it. So most natural pearls, instead of being created by that grain of sand, which is truly what... M- most of the time, it is not a grain of sand. Okay. It's going to be some sort of parasite, like a drill worm. Uh, uh, okay. That actually, like, drill into the oyster through the mantle of the shell. Wow. And it triggers cool. this defense mechanism. And that is horrific. So what happens is this little drill worm, this little parasite, is then within the oyster itself. itself 
and then it gets coated with this knacker. And these are the layers of knacker are one thousandth of a millimeter thick. Mm -hmm. That's one layer. So okay. it takes forever <laughs> to coat this into right. like yeah. a, a pearl. So Full anytime process. that you give natural pearls to somebody, you are giving you are giving them <laughs> little beads that are have a little tiny parasite right amazing. in the middle. <laughs> parasite which beads. Is Excellent. Amazing. Well, but then they're cultured pearls <laughs> too, right? Uh yes, there are. So most cult most pearls nowadays are actually cultured. They are not actually natural pearls. Right. Uh, just because of the demand of pearls. Yeah. So much easier. Cultured pearls are where farmers will actually create a, sl a small slit within the mantle and then they will introduce some sort of irritant. Oftentimes it's like a really tiny bead or piece something of oyster similar. shell is what I've heard. Uh, and then a piece of shell also works. Yeah. And just allow it to grow. It's interesting that they start with something really small. You think if you had something that was almost mm. pearl size, like a plastic bead, you could then just have it put a few <laughs> coats on there and very quickly have a pearl. I don't think, I mean, I guess you could, but I don't, I think that kind of size, the pearl would be able to expel it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You got to start a certain size. Um, but they don't expel the, the pearl. So. Weird. I don't think so because they are growing. Um, it's it is a little bit of a flawed system because it actually becomes part of the the parasite itself is like buried into the mantle and is trying to eat part of the like shell itself. So it's sure. coating, and because it's the same material as like the shell itself, like it, it's still going to be like part of that muscle. So it's just creating like a bigger and bigger like bit it's kind of like having um like i guess a, a ball in your mouth or something i don't know but they don't ever expel Happy them valentine's day they just kind of have them yeah that's it's it's really interesting i suppose we're talking about you know being able to expel it uh they just from an evolutionary standpoint mm -hmm. they're just working on get, using what they have on at hand the ability to make knacker to coat an intruder and the ability to expel it may be like right. a completely other thing that they just don't have the ability to do, right? Right. And well, if you think about it too, uh, oysters don't have the muscle to be able to push yeah. them out in right, the first right. place. Like they don't have that sort of mechanism to be able to push out. They're not a, a scallop a that goes swimming. Um, <laughs> exactly. With all its little blue eyes. So to give you a little context too, to give you a little context, a pearl... That is five millimeters in diameter. Okay. okay. Or also for the rest of us who don't speak science, uh, 0.19 inches. So it's not even a quarter of an inch. That makes even less sense. That takes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that takes at least two years to grow to that size. Oh, okay. I mean, that's a long time, but I actually thought it might be even longer. So. Not too bad. Yeah. So I wanted, I just wanted to talk about pearls today. Uh, they're really bizarre in how they're formed and the fact that they're little parasites that are coated yeah, parasite and coated balls. and coated by outer shell. And the fact that they are the only gem on earth 
that is made by an organism, not just mined out of the earth mm. itself. It's created uh, by a living almost. creature. Almost. Are they, are they a Amber. It's one of the only. It's one of the only. Huh, Amber. Is that more of like a semi-precious stone? Is that yeah. a gem, though? Yeah, I don't know. That's uh, uh, tricky. I one. don't know. Arguable, I guess. Depends mm. how you define gem, I guess. I'd have to look into it. It's it's wild on its own. Um, so when you give your loved one that pearl necklace for Valentine's Day or for some <laughs> anniversary, just know you're gifting them little parasites wrapped in layers and layers of oyster <laughs> shell. Wow. <That> is, <laughs> My is sources this week are the Natural History Museum. The Smithsonian Magazine had a really great article. And I also got some really good information from the How Stuff Works cool. website. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. That's all I have for y'all this week. I believe that's that's awesome. it. That's it. So, yeah, that's the well, end of the show. Yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we'll see you next week. week. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks everyone for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.